0: Each generation, through its trials and its triumphs, valleys and plateaus, provides a trove of lesson for the generations that follow them. The fight for equity is endless, always requiring us to innovate
1: and preserve simultaneously. We advance by building on the work of those who've gone before us, and many of them are still among us to put us on game. Gin Activist is an intergenerational podcast presented by Rosa Rebellion, a platform for creative activism by and for women of color. We are setting a table for intergenerational dialogue and collective disruption.
2: Imagine It is a historical digital archive remastered for contemporary use and permanent preservation. These are our stories told by us, for us. So get hyped for your co-hosts, Rosa Rebellion co-founders Virginia Cumberbatch, myself, Megan Harding, and the matriarch of Virginia's maternal family and the anchor of this podcast, someone we affectionately call G-Mom, Dr. Sylvia Russo.
3: Gen activist, yeah, 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 yeah.
2: What's up, everybody? We are back with another episode of Gen Activist and Intergenerational Dialogue. We are super excited because today we're talking about a topic that is near and dear to all of our hearts, education, but particularly near and dear to G Mom's heart as she has been a lifelong educator and devoted herself to the learning of our children. And so we have an educator today who is so thoughtful about equity and the ways in which teachers can model their classrooms and change the way that they are teaching so that all students can learn. So I just wanna take a moment to introduce her to you. Dr. Rita Suh has been an educator in Southern California for 15 years. As an educator, she has held many roles, including classroom teacher, intervention teacher, literacy coach, educational therapists, and special projects. As an educational therapist, she helps students with learning disabilities develop strategies specific to their learning goals. She's currently an adjunct professor at CSU Long Beach in the Department of Teacher Education and Department of Advanced Studies in Education and Counseling. She continues to pursue her passion for supporting teachers to maximize student achievement and opportunities for all students. In 2018, she started working with the UCLA Center X Project Social Justice Through Language, Literacy, and Leadership as an instructional leader and with UCLA Center X Culture and Equity Project as a lead coach. She also co-founded Myriad Creative Resources, an educational consulting company. We are super excited to welcome her to the pod. We hope that you will enjoy this episode. Check it out.
1: Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Gen Activists. We are so excited, we're kind of rounding out season one. And so we've been so grateful for the many voices that we have um, invited and introduced into our virtual living room. And today we are thrilled to have Rita Sub with us, um, who you've heard a little bit about in our introduction in terms of her incredible thought leadership and research around education, specifically um, her commitment and her passion around making sure that we're educating all children equitably. and particularly creating spaces of belonging for students um, and children of color. And so um, Rita, we're so excited that you said yes today um, to join us in this important conversation um, as we think about the current headlines Um, across the country and this critical narrative that's being sort of cultivated around our history and language as a part of curriculum um, and this idea of critical race theory, uh, we thought it was so vital to carve out some space to talk about the work of education as a part of racial justice. And that is the work that you do. And so before we get into sort of the nitty gritty, right, of this work and the incredible thought leadership you've been a part of building we'd love to just learn a little bit more about you um kind of a little bit about your origin story um, and what brought you to this field of education you know before we started even we're talking about the origin of your name um uh, which is the korean name you're korean and feel just tell us a little bit about where you grew up um, and how that parlayed you into this work of education
3: yeah first of all thank you so much for inviting me to be here i really am honored sometimes i you know before I was literally on five minutes ago I kept asking myself why did they ask me I'm just a Korean girl from California (laughs) so thank you I am the daughter of South Korean immigrants my parents immigrated here to the United States in 1978 but I was born and raised in California and I'm just one of the lucky ones I always knew I always wanted to be a teacher I think my earliest memory of wanting to be a teacher was in third grade but my passion for equity really started about 10 years ago when I came across cultural responsive pedagogy and then I had the opportunity to work with Dr. Sylvia Rousseau here. She was my dissertation chair and from there I really was empowered to help teachers and work with teachers to help students who are oppressed to no longer feel oppressed and she really gave me that passion. Oh, my gosh,
1: that's it's so chilling. You know, what's the neat thing about this podcast, obviously, is doing it with people that I love and have relationships with. But um, I've been on many other sides of conversations with strangers. And then when they hear who my grandmother is, there's always a story about like, And and your grandmother motivated me to do X, Y, and Z. Your grandmother got me to dive deeper. And so um, Mm -hmm. having experienced that as her granddaughter, it's really wonderful to see the way in which she's inspired people in their work.
0: Yes. I have a great eye or ear for people who I think are sincere and dedicated to this work. Uh, And my journey with Rita, Through her dissertation, we had many, many, many long conversations, digging deeper, trying to really understand. Uh, And Rita wasn't just understanding to get her dissertation done. I sensed that she wanted to understand to be a better person and a better educator. And that attracted me. And for some reason she stays in contact with me and it's always a very stimulating conversation that we have. So um, it, it was, re- you know, I'm a great believer in reciprocal learning, that we always learn from one another. I, I love just the concept from Freddie that in dialogue, it's subject to subject. It's not like subject to object. I know everything and you, you, you're the depository we both know things and we co-construct this new knowledge. So each time I speak with Rita, I have that feeling that we're exchanging knowledge, we're digging deeper.
2: Thank you. Yeah, Rita, and when you talk about, you know, helping students that felt oppressed or disenfranchised, um, you know, it's such important work. When we, when I think back to, you know, my formative years and being in school, it was those teachers that were keenly aware um that perhaps as a black girl traversing the world i was experiencing it a bit different um, than everyone else and the people who kind of helped me navigate you know what that meant for me and started to really kind of shape my thoughts um, on race were really really important um and you know this last year the aapi community specifically east asian people have experienced um, you know, great violence and vitriol, you know, because of lots of things, you know, our political culture and and the framing of the coronavirus and, um, you know, just lots of hate directed their way. But we also know that they've endured violence throughout history, you know, and a lot of times I think maybe that gets lost it's like all of a sudden people are paying attention which i think is good we experience that as black people right we have inflection points where people start to pay attention but um i also know that there's a history there and so i would love it if you could just talk to us a little bit about um how you think communities should work together to bring liberation um for us all so meaning Obviously, as Black people, we can certainly relate to oppression and violence, um, but a lot of times our communities seem to be siloed, you know, um, and and there's not like this cross work. And I think we talk about this a lot on the podcast, how important it is that we all use our collective power. And um, so I would just love to get your thoughts on that before we dive into um, talking about our gravely inequitable education system.
3: Yeah. I mean, there's so much there. Um, you're right, the violence and the racism hasn't just started. And before I answer your question about how we can work together, I think it's important that, we, that I share briefly uh, the history of Asian Americans because many aren't aware of it. I know I wasn't aware of it until I intentionally had to go out and learn it because it's been left out of history books. Uh, I also think that it's important for us to know each other's histories because that's the first step to getting to a place where we can help each other. So Asian Americans and more specifically Chinese immigrants um, starting in the 1800s were treated so poorly. They were exploited. They were also thought as racially inferior and immoral. Um, They had to work and were paid significantly less or weren't paid at all they were lynched they weren't eligible for citizenship Um, later they were denied entry into the united states you know we also can't forget about the japanese in concentration camps and in the 1900s asians were were denied access to public schools even though their tax dollars were paying to maintain public schools and when they were finally allowed to attend public schools, they were forced to attend the segregated schools with other Black students. And I, I, I um, so I think it's important that we understand that it hasn't just started, we've always been racialized. Uh, but I do think that the Black and Asian communities can come together for a larger cause. First, I really wish that we could recognize that white supremacy, and when I say white supremacy, I'm not talking about specific groups, but I'm referring to the beliefs and practices and norms that center this dominant white culture and that oppresses other groups. But I wish we could recognize that white supremacy benefits when these minoritized groups are pitted against each other. Um, for, and I think a perfect example of that is this model minority myth that was created in the mid 60s you know this model minority myth says that Asians are hard-working family-oriented and moral and that Asian American students are obedient and and high achieving but that myth before you know I just shared that history of how poorly we were treated and then up until black Americans started rising and fighting for the equality in the civil rights movement as as a response to that and to intentionally criticize and attack Black Americans, these American journalists and politicians started coming up with this model minority myth. You know, it was very intentional. And by saying things like, if Asians can make it, then Blacks should. You know, if Asians can make it, why can't Blacks? It really undermines the racism and the oppression that Black Americans have been dealing with. Um, The second point I want to say is that I think We need to realize that both groups have experienced discrimination and systemic racism. Um, And part of knowing each other is knowing each other's histories and experiences and narratives. But I think it's time for us to start moving away from one-upping each other and saying whose histories were worse or more traumatic. And we need to gather together to move towards dismantling the system that benefits when we're when we're pitted against each other, when they oppress us, yeah, so well said. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so well
0: said in a very succinct way, uh, and I think that's a good launching point for us as we continue and begin to think about that in relation to education and how education uh, continues to perpetuate those myths. The myth of white superiority, the myth of the model minority, the myth of um, of blacks who don't want to learn or to work, the myths just abound, and um, so we need to we need to um, encounter them, contradict them in ways, and do some truth telling. Uh, but education, I contend, has been a co-conspirator in those myths and so I I think it's helpful for us to even if we think we're at that point here in this discussion to begin to talk about the role education has played in perpetuating that myth there's no other institution that has an influence on children at their most formative years other than education Mm -hmm. and at least 80 percent of the population, and that's a conservative guess, are part of that. And that, that influence lasts from early childhood to adulthood. So education is implicated in this in some ways. And um, you know I think we all can talk about it from personal experiences, but also from systemic uh, perspectives.
1: Absolutely. You know, you know, G-Mom, you, you, you share this often throughout the podcast, right? The role of education, right? Um, and even, Rita, you just mentioned, even the role of media and our the way we tell stories, right? But this was an intentional framing, right, of um, misconstruing history and misconstruing reality to say, well, you know, we've seen this economic, um, development happen in certain Asian communities. And so this, this, the, this conversation that black and Brown communities, right. Aren't just, aren't working hard enough to get themselves out of poverty, right. To create this mentality of hardworking and the paradox of, you know, this, um, framing of black bodies and black lives you know from slavery in terms of being inferior or lazy um, is a part of the narratives that lead into our education system and so when i think about my own matriculation through k through 12 system um you realize how both conscious and unconscious right the framing of our history books and the framing of um, our language um, as students and um, educators plays a huge part in just how we see ourselves in the world. You know, G Mom always says this phrase that I love: where do you see yourself on the map of human geography? And if we are starting to plant these seeds from the time kids come into kindergarten, that their place is that of low expectations of them, right? Or that there is no place for them in this world. Right. Um, We've already done um, their um, their maturation as children a disservice. And so I would love to kind of hear from you, you know, the role that curriculum specifically plays into this. Um, Megan and I are based in Texas, which I think is one of the produces the most amount of textbooks in the country, which is a very scary thought. And there has been recent discourse, particularly around um, the ways in which these textbooks um, are framing history. Um, I believe a few years ago, there was even this example that the language that was used around slavery um, was as migrant workers. Yeah. Um, right, which creates this idea that there was agency um, and there was language around um, Mexican-American laborers in the late 1800s as being lazy, and that's why they took siestas. And all of these things are so intentional, right? And they have such large and grave consequences. And so if you could just tell us a little bit about the role that our curriculum and our textbooks specifically play in, in creating these narratives, And particularly where you think this current um, definition of critical race theory can be meaningful or necessary.
3: Virginia, there was something that you said that made me think about this myth of meritocracy that if Americans work hard enough, you will be successful. And I think that also is really really embedded in our education system because so many times we are told and we tell our students well maybe you just didn't try hard enough or you need to study harder that that it's not as that it has nothing to do with the teacher or with the curriculum or with um the practices and policies that are that are shutting students out it had nothing to do with that it's because you didn't try hard enough and so that that myth really is perpetuated from the time that a student enters mm-hmm. school and is embedded in their entire life. Mm-hmm. And we just know it's not true. Yeah, so.
0: I, that, that's such a, pers- a wonderful place to land for a minute because it's one of those structures in our educa- unspoken, and they're almost imperceptible. So everybody buys into it. Yeah, I didn't try hard enough. And I can remember conversations when I was a principal and I would hear teachers say to parents, well, your your son just isn't trying hard enough. And, and I would always ask, say, trying hard at what? What are you asking him to try hard? Read more pages, turn in more, pounds of homework, what is the trying hard about? And what implications does that have for you as a teacher? So I used to tell students, they're gonna come in here and they're gonna be talking about you. Your mama's gonna be listening. Your teacher's got her own story about you. I need you to speak for yourself. So when that teacher says you should try harder, I want you to ask the question, what do you want me to try harder at doing and how? And I want you also to tell your teacher, put it back on the teachers. Mm -hmm. If I ask that teacher, tell you be prepared to say to that teacher, Miss So-and-so or Mr. So-and-so, if you did more of this, I would understand better. I want you to say to them, I understand better when you do this and I can respond. Uh, so it, it meritocracy is a part of this larger american myth mm-hmm. of uh individualism rugged divi- individualism mm-hmm. and it even works against having kids work together because learning is social um mm-hmm. uh, so yeah that's yeah, a great
2: i i always tell you know in the legal field um always talk to lawyers who are you know the legal field is not always the most favorable for attorneys of color. <laughs> um, there there are a lot of barriers to entry. And then when you get there, there's a lot of barriers to matriculation. And it can be really discouraging. And I have to tell them, look, these people are not smarter than you. Um, it, you know, you really need to disabuse yourself of the myth of meritocracy. You know, there are a lot of circumstances that lead us to where we are. And I remember in law school, um, you know, really struggling with with my place at this predominantly white institution um, surrounded by people who had grown up. Some went to boarding schools. some grew up, you know, going to extremely, you know, just good schools, some of them, their whole family is attorneys, you know, so they've been around it their whole life and they've spoken the language and, and there's a language to being an attorney. And so you know, as a person of color at this at this PWI, it was really tough. The learning curve was really tough, but it wasn't because I was any less smart. I can say that now at the time, I didn't know that, right? At the time it did literally feel like, you know, perhaps I'm just less smart, but that wasn't true. There were just cultural components that were true for me and true for a lot of other students um, that weren't true for some others. And the world kind of, the world of law Bent towards those students. Um, And there were very few professors that were available and understood it enough to name it. Um, But I did have some that would name it and that would really help me um, put my finger on what that thing was. But I think about The people who are currently at these institutions, whether it be higher education or K through 12 and the messages that they're getting about themselves and their intelligence because you know, we have the myth of meritocracy. Instead of just saying, (laughs) no, Mm -hmm. they just come from a completely different circumstance, and -and so-and-so had a connection, and so little Johnny ended up here, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And and so I think it's important to deconstruct it.
3: Absolutely. And that language is not tied to intelligence. Mm -hmm. Mm
2: -hmm.
3: intelligence.
2: Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely.
1: I think, Megan, you named something that I think is really important. which is, um, again, about the stories we tell ourselves and the stories that shape who we are. Um, and when I think about my transition from high school to college, um, I went to a very competitive high school in the sense that it was a college prep schools, private school, and as the only black girl in my grade, right, it was really hard for me to disconnect right? Performance with it being an expression of my cultural or racial identity, right? Because if I'm always comparing myself to white students or Asian students, right, that's the construct that is built out. But one of the most powerful sort of um, disruptions of that ideology was in college having finally the language and the narratives that affirmed who I was in the world and that prism for me was as a history major, a sociology major, and being exposed to Black history and Latinx history that was never a part of my education and that was such a springboard for affirming who I was and giving me a place in my academic experience and so Rita, We'd love to hear about, you know, a little bit more about your research um, and your experience and being really committed to um, sort of recalibrating curriculum um, and what role that plays in, as you stated, um, helping to disrupt the oppression that so many students of color experience um, in their education.
0: As you do, Rita, I really want you to uh, include in it your research on language you said something a few moments ago that language isn't intelligent so perceptions of language and maybe some of your research that you did that we worked on together about this place of language and then also your your own personal journey
3: well the research that i did on on language was specifically around african-american language also known as ebonics and it was teachers' perceptions of students who spoke African American language in in, in the mm-hmm. classroom, and what I found was, number one, the deficit view of people who spoke African American language, not just students but people in general. And then when students spoke it in the class, how often they were overcorrected or told, "You don't you don't talk like that here," um, and And what we know about child development is that when students are not allowed to bring who they are into the classroom, or when they feel like, in order to be successful, I have to lose who I am, Mm -hmm. does not create a safe learning environment. And so, you know, my research showed that teachers would say, you know, would, um, hold on, so sorry. My research would show that, Teachers, number one, had no knowledge though of what linguistic patterns, features, even the cultural um, behaviors that were connected to the language, they had no idea what that was. It has never been taught to them. So you also, you know, I also felt like, well, you can't blame them because you don't know what you don't know. And I'm I'm so glad that, that they were part of my research because it was after that they started to reach out and said, is this part of the culture? Is this part of the culture? And they wouldn't, you know, they would really, Try to connect with their students in a different way once they were aware of what language was, and and um, I'm so I was just so thankful for them.
0: Yeah, Uh, the point I think we uh, people do not know this, uh, and I'm so glad you're teaching teachers now, but they do not know there are a couple of things people don't know. They don't understand linguistics. The American Linguistics Society says Ebonics is a language, period, no stop. And they don't understand that early encounters with language are part of what helps shape patterns in the brain. So when children come with this language, full of it, but it's expressed in a language that is uh, marginalized or demeaned, uh, they experience this and they shut down and much of the research shows that particularly for black boys, they have shut down by third grade because nothing they have to say is of value. And and can we just imagine the long range Mm. influence on their identities that I have nothing to say that's of value and therefore I'm nothing. So that's one part of what you're doing continue with other things that you're working on and working with teachers
2: i will i will say rita i have this is a very kind of personal topic to me um, about dialect and language because Mm -hmm. i have a very texas accent right it's 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 pretty pronounced um i grew up in tyler texas in the country um and so my accent kind of comes through and i started to recognize that i had a self-consciousness that was learned around it, because I recognized that people assigned intellectual value to the yes. way that you speak, yes. right? Yes. And, you know, now in my mid thirties, I've kind of like rid myself of that. Here I am speaking on a podcast, right? But there was a time when I didn't wanna speak in class, I wouldn't raise my hand because I was very aware of my accent and the reason mm-hmm. that, and, and the fact that even if I was speaking quote unquote, um, standardized language, I won't call it correct language or correct grammar, Mm -hmm. but standardized language, right? People would still assign a lower intellect to me because of my dialect, right? Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, as I've gotten older, I've really shed that and I've really worked hard to not code switch as much to allow myself to stay in my body. But I recognize that the psychological impact that it had on me through my formative years, what would have happened in law school and in undergrad if I had felt comfortable to speak mm-hmm. up more, if I had felt comfortable to um, let myself engage in, in in the dialogue more in class and to and to speak with my professors more. You know, it was a real barrier for me.
3: There's mm-hmm. so much connected to that because, because of your of of someone making you feel ashamed you intentionally stayed quiet in class and you didn't speak out teachers also misconstrue that as someone not knowing the answers or 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 uh, or isn't engaged in the classroom lecture right so mm-hmm. there's so much within that and again it came it comes down to language so language is so important and um so sorry to kind of skew this and ch- and change the subject, but my mom, we were talking about the black Korean conflict and my mom was saying part of the, I, she was saying part of the main reason why there is such a deep conflict is the language. That if the first generation immigrants, Korean immigrants were able to understand and get to know other cultures and have conversations, there wouldn't be such, mm-hmm. you know, such vitriol and and hate between the two
0: cultures yes it's not knowing each other not knowing one another's history not knowing the assets you know we've talked about this a lot if you see people through a deficit lens um, you don't even want the contact it doesn't seem worth your time Um, And so, uh, but this language is huge in education. I really am inviting you to speak more on it. I just wanted to say about Ebonics for our audience to clarify that it is a rule-based language. It's not just black kids who make up slang. I mean, they do their share of that, that's true. But that's not the issue and that's not what we mean by language. It is rule-based based on syntax and structures coming out of West Africa and the Congo. And so when slaves came here unable to uh, understand each other because they came from different parts and certainly being thrust in settings that were Portuguese or French or English, etc., In America, what they do is impose the vocabulary on the syntactical and um, structures of African languages. And so they are speaking English words, but they're speaking them. So when here are a couple of examples, like the um, the double positive or the double negative, let's say. My mama don't want no more of that. Uh, But in France, France has a double negative too, and we don't criticize it or things like the uh, appositives my mama she uh or uh that dog he uh so we give that extra subject but in many languages that's done for emphasis uh but if you have this skewed deficit view you see you you interpret it or you promote that it is evidence of uh black people just can't get it right and I know other people coming from other languages and and cultures encounter some of that but the lens may be a little different about the differences.
3: I want to plug in two projects that I have. The first one is a Facebook Live through UCLA Center X on June 22nd at 5:30 it will be a conversation with three other fabulous asian-american women and it will just be about our asian-american identity development and the journey the title is becoming asian american a conversation exploring our journeys as asian americans The second thing that I would like to share with you is my colleague Stacy Griffin and I wrote a book titled Establishing Equitable Opportunities for All Students. And you can purchase the book through the Culture and Equity Project website. Rita, one of the things I would love to hear about
1: your journey into making this a focal point of your research and and your own teachings is you know as megan and i've stated we grew up in texas and so um, texas particularly in the time that we grew up um, large La- latinx community and i think for a really long time at least in my own collegiate studies there was an acknowledgement of the harm that forcing students to erase their their first language or their linguistic expression that was taking place at the home when they got to school which you know we think about even the history of indigenous communities that they were stripped of their language and their traditions and it's like what do you have left as a child to hold on to to help you navigate a school space when you're being rid um being asked to be uh to get rid of your language and your practices and how painful that must be and how lost you must be and so i think it's really wonderful to hear us at the very least just affirm that ebonics or aave is a language right Um, there's something really powerful about just naming that like it's not just something that happens because i think for a really long time we spoke about that for spanish language people that were coming to school you know with Um, Arabic being their first language, or Korean being their first language, right? And we looked at that as like, wow, you're multilingual, right? And even that comes with a certain prestige. And so if you could walk us through just a little bit about your uh, your process to this becoming a part of your research, um, and why you believe that this work is actually a, a big piece of dismantling racial oppression
3: okay virginia that's a loaded question but here we go <laughs> well let me first start off by sharing my own personal story and what led me to to this work so i think and i also think my personal story is a is it is a great example of what happens when certain narratives are left out of the curriculum so as a korean korean girl i grew up in a predominantly white community and I wanted to be white. I thought that the perfect way to experience life was to be white. I also thought I wasn't good enough or mattered until I was as white as I could be. And I also thought everyone else should be. So I ended up developing so much self-hatred and hatred towards others who weren't as white or as white as they should be or weren't white. And as I, You know st virginia i also majored in sociology it wasn't until i got to college that i realized that nowhere along the way in k-12 this largest institution that i'm a part of nowhere along the way did it create any experiences for me to value myself who my parents and ancestors are and all the and, and others who weren't white it was nowhere in the curriculum nowhere in the classroom discourses or the literature In fact, I feel like those three things only perpetuated my self-hate and hate for others. And so that is my fear, that if schools leave out um, true racial histories and racial justice from the curriculum, that people will continue to be oppressed and groups of people will continue to be oppressive because I think When we don't hear other stories and different histories of the non-dominant groups, it skews our patriotism. Mm -hmm. It skews our our views and perceptions of people. And and you mentioned agency earlier in the podcast. I feel like when students walk into a classroom, they're always asking, so where do I fit in with this? does this classroom really authentically represent who I am and so when when educators are saying who you are is an asset and let me show you how because I'm sharing your histories someone who looks like you and talks like you and your language is up on my wall and in our books um, I have books on the in Ebonics and in chicano english you know in every sense of the way you who you are is 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 an important asset to the classroom and to everyone, and I want to make sure that you know that. That, I think, is the most important. And so when we are going to, you know, this, there's so much movement to leave critical race theory out in, in our curriculums, and I'm just worried that this is what's going to happen.
2: It's also the intentional setting of a narrative, right? Like they, at the, at the end of the day, there's a certain, narrative that has been perpetuated about american exceptionalism um which really is just synonymous with white people and what it means to um you know how great the nation is to kind of get rid of kind of the parts um, of our history that tell the true story of oppression and violence and i mean great hate, you know, great, great, great violence inflicted on human bodies, right? And to have people not learn that history, to not be, means that we can't confront it. I I often think about something that Brian Stevenson always talks about. And in particular, when he built the lynching museum in Alabama, he talks a lot about how with the Holocaust, um, when when you go, there are... um, uh ways that they have chosen to memorialize what happened and it's front and center in germany Mm -hmm. so that people can really confront it and then they can ensure that it doesn't repeat itself that it doesn't happen again but america has always wanted to just bury ours and not face it Mm -hmm. and how important it was for him to do the work of marking the graves of uh, marking the sites of lynchings throughout the country so that we can really face what happened, that we dehumanize um, people groups, not just, just Black people, but entire people groups based on their race. And in a lot of ways, our systems continue to do that. But we've never actually confronted our true history. And if you start to do this, um, I guess, I don't, I don't know what I would call it. Um, I would call it lying or myth telling. But if you start if you, okay. <laughs> erasing. Right, erasing um, in grade school, right? If you start that early, you know, Mm -hmm. systems are made up. uh, I mean, obviously systems are, you know, systems, but systems are constructed by people. Mm -hmm. And those people have belief systems that then get embedded into our systems that that then work against, you know, people of color in this Mm -hmm. country. Mm -hmm. If you start as young as grade school, how much indoctrination has taken place by the time they get to adulthood. So then when they hear critical race theory, right, then they can absolutely be against something they know nothing about. Most of the people, if I ask them to define it, they can't. Um, you know, but the idea that people are saying critical race theory is against American values, whatever those are, that are defined by white people, and that critical race theory is an affront to patriotism. People just believe it because they've been conditioned to do so from grade school.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, and so it's, it's, it's dangerous and it's harmful, but it is effective. Um, yeah. It is effective.
0: I, I think what you're speaking of here is, has implications for how we move forward. There is a group that has been around, Rita, you're probably aware of them, who have been developing curriculum for schools, trying to knock on the doors and say, let us in. It's called Facing History and Ourselves uh, by the Constitutional uh, Rights Foundation. And um, it, it, it does such a beautiful job, and yet it has such a difficult time getting admitted into the curriculum, the mainstream curriculum. So it's always doing its work on the side here for a few teachers who are open to it and and are willing to brave the storm and the repercussions that come from it. But it's a trite expression, but it has truth. Unless we face our history, we are doomed to repeat it. Mm -hmm. That's just so profound. Now, it can be a positive thing if our history is strong, but if not, and denying it, as you're saying, Megan, we don't wanna hear about it. Uh, We are doomed to keep repeating it. And if it's not toward black people, I don't see that ending soon, or if it's not toward Korean Americans or indigenous people, it's a mindset that it will always be inflicted towards someone and it, 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 portends the demise of this nation. You cannot keep uh, denying people's humanity because when you deny someone else's humanity, you're denying your own. James Baldwin, I've memorized this uh, sentence from him. It's a terrible, inexorable law, he says, that when one looks into the face of his victim, he sees himself. That is such a profound So in dehumanizing others you lose your own. Um, and so you know I just wanted to know more about what you are doing with teachers mm-hmm. now to help them cross that and to get beyond it and some of it has to do with dealing with themselves and confronting themselves. Um, and so maybe you could talk a little bit about how you see yourself as an educator of educators.
3: Yes. Um, so my work, I have two roles. Essentially, it's all in the umbrella of education. But my role as a adjunct professor in the credential program, I everything that I teach my lessons to the the entire course is through a cultural responsive lens and a critical race theory lens mm-hmm. because I need them to understand that our school policies and practices where they originally originated from are extremely oppressive to all groups of, of people who are not the dominant culture. So LGBTQ plus people with disabilities, women, people who are not Christian, low socioeconomic status and people of color. So one thing that I do also in my role as an educational consultant is we examine the The policies and practices that they've been doing for so long. And a lot of times, um, you know, educators, we just do things because that's the way it's always been done (laughs) without questioning it. And what i like to do is go in and now have them question it because now we need to dismantle it it really is so oppressive so for example we examine where do these zero tolerance discipline policies come from well they mainly impact black and brown students where do they place school resource officers right and all all of that all of these things contribute to the school to prison pipeline Mm -hmm. um let's look at hair and dress code policies i I personally feel that they're used as a guise to perpetuate racist, anti-black, homophobic, and very binary gender views. Um, I just saw, you know, talking about Texas, I just saw a few months ago a boy in Texas, high school student who was suspended for wearing nail polish to school. Did you guys see that? He was suspended because their dress code specifically states males cannot wear nail polish, you know, and so, it's just a lot of things that are just so old and um, embedded in our system. We, again, we don't even see what, how it impacts others because a lot of times, if it doesn't impact the educator themselves, why even look into it? So that's the first thing is being aware of why we do things, where it comes from. And then also looking at curriculum and instructional approaches and when I say instructional approaches, it's not just about the strategies and practices and um, you know all that fun stuff. It's the lens through which they are teaching. Do you believe that who your students are are an asset? Do you be, you know what are your beliefs about teaching? Do you see your students' um, language, speaking of language, or their cultural behaviors as something that needs to be corrected and fixed in order to be successful? So it's a lot of questioning and almost, I kind of feel like um, the metaphor that I would use is like a gardener. I'm just kind of digging up the soil because we got to get all that gunk out before we can really start to re-layer and and re-teach and unlearn some of the stuff that we've been doing in our entire lives.
0: I love the metaphor of digging up (laughs) the soil. Uh, and, and I would say, so we can replant, replant. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Plant new seeds. Yes. Plant new stories, new narratives wow. about who people are. Um, yeah, uh, and I'm curious how people. Uh, if you can talk a little bit about what those conversations are, and what kind of responses you get, and um, and if you can kind of examine. Um, if you have some indicators of change that you see t- taking place in teachers feeling a little comfort that they will go into the classroom a little different from what they were
3: yeah i think more so for my students than than with the educators that i work with as a consultant mm-hmm. my students because i get 16 weeks with them mm-hmm. There's a lot of healing that happens and I know I, I only say that because my students feedback and our relationships that have continued after the 16 weeks and I have mm-hmm. so many relationships with my students who continue the work on healing themselves and and Understanding what it looks like to see things through a racial lens and And when they say, and when I say things, I mean, media, students, parents, um, groceries, everything, everything is through this racialized lens. So I love that they continue that work and that to me is really important. Mm -hmm. I also would say as a consultant, I, I don't know how, how long the work goes after I leave. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. You know, while I'm there, there are little nuance changes. So, you know, there's a there was a teacher I worked with, and this has happened several times, but a, a good example I was thinking about was there's a teacher I worked with who would overly correct her students' behaviors because she did not know that the behaviors her students came in with were cultural behaviors. Mm-hmm. And so once I pointed that out to her, um, she started to see her students in a more... Loving, I would say, just a loving and caring way. Geneva Gay always talks about caring as a pillar of cultural responsive pedagogy. She just started seeing them differently. It it relieved some of that tension too between that teacher student relationship because she realized, oh, when you're talking over me, that's showing me that you're engaged in our conversation. You're not interrupting me or being disrespectful, right? Just even teaching the little nuances of that was really important. Um, also, I I, I I am also teaching teachers linguistic features of African American language and Chicano English. So, for example, I had a teacher who saw that a student wrote um, in in double negatives. And so she ran down to my room and this is when I was teaching. She ran down to my room and she says, "Okay, so is this an example of African American language? I said, yes. She says, "Okay, so what do I do? Because I don't want to correct him. I thought that was beautiful. Mm-hmm. So that's the, that's the thing. Those are the things that really drive me and motivate me.
1: That's so beautiful. And I, I want to kind of, as we close, pull us back to that metaphor that you shared, Rita, as a, a gardener, which is, you know, when I think of gardening, which um, I I attempted and was successful for one summer as a gardener last year. We're not going to am not going to attempt it this summer. Realize it's hard work. Um, but um, there's something about gardening where you have to be a caretaker Right there's an investment. There's a tilling of the soil. It's getting out all the things that aren't going to be nutritious or nurturing, and then there's hope. Like when you see those little sprouts happen, they're, they're seeds of hope, right? Or they're they're the uh, manifestation of your seeds of hope. And so you know, as we see what's taking place across the country, which is this attack on what Macon I think so beautifully defined as an attack on truth an attack on our truth collectively as a country, Um, as we think about the complexities that living through this global pandemic has brought to the education field. And we know Black and Brown students specifically have been impacted the most. and we think about, hopefully, the current educators and future educators that might be listening to this episode. Um, what's giving you hope this summer? Um, when you think about your work and your research, uh, what's giving you hope or what um, nuggets of encouragement could you offer us?
3: I can say this, that one thing that is really motivating is I also work at the Culture and Equity Project at UCLA Center X with Tanika Orange. She's phenomenal. And I would say that our workload is increasing, which means people are starting to become aware. And, and quote, unquote, this woke culture is blossoming. And I think it's a beautiful thing. I think people, the great thing about Gen Z, I know some people have nothing nice to say about Gen Z. I have everything nice to say about Gen Z. I think they're amazing. They are disruptors in the right way. They know how to use their voice. They are so empowered. And and so this, this new crop of teachers that are coming up, going back to the garden reference, this new crop of teachers who are coming up are all about disrupting and dismantling the system. And one of my students in my course said, um, I don't want to disrupt and dismantle the system because the system was built off racism and Mm -hmm. and anti-everything that's not a dominant culture. She says, I think we need to just start all over and create a system that works for us. Amazing, she's 21, 22 years old. I would never have thought that way was 21 or 22 this generation is amazing so there's so, so much of that i think um i want to share that
0: you know john rogers you know john rogers i'm sure at ucla so um we've worked together for years and at one time i taught at us ucla so i um he invites me every year to sit in on his uh class for principals people who are aspiring to become principals i agree with you i have never met a more thirsty group of young people who want to make the change and who, um, and, and I felt like a rock star because he he uses a lot of my writing and interviews that we've done together. So on Zoom, this young lady walks in and she says, oh, "Sylvia Rousseau. And so, but I've never felt so welcome. They ate up everything. They want to do the work, and now is the time to build on that work. Uh, and. I have such confidence that you're doing the work, Rita. I really do. That's why I wanted you on this podcast.
2: <laughs> what What I think is so beautiful is, um, you know, that you're doing the work across cultures, I think. The fact that you have taken the time and it's not shallow you know you've taken the time Mm -hmm. to really understand cultures that are different from your own and then Mm -hmm. help to be what we call a co-agitator at rosa rebellion so beyond allyship which is kind of passive it's kind of like i don't hate those people i might put a yard sign in my front yard you know wear the t-shirt or whatever but co-agitation is really the idea of co-laboring you are really in it with us you are spending whatever access and privilege you have on behalf of people who might not share your your same culture. And so, um, and I, I really just believe that as we liberate people of color, um, white people who do not perhaps realize the ways in which they are bound will um, be liberated as well. And so all of us um, mm-hmm. will, will have a better future for it. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think that, you know, your work is so important. I think about when I was in school. And, you know, if I had had someone who, especially in great in elementary school, because in elementary school, I went to a predominantly white school. And then after that, I, I went to predominantly black schools, which was actually a really great experience. But um, in elementary school, those times when I'm questioning myself, when I'm assigning value to whiteness, when I'm figuring out you know, who I am in the world and what does it mean for my body? What does it mean for my brain? Is my brain as, as sharp as these white students, all of those things, just someone to come in and tell my teachers to pay attention. Right. Just to pay attention to the ways in which your students of color, um, might not be experiencing the world the same, and also mm-hmm. the ways in which this system that we have set out does not make room for their culture and does not affirm it, mm-hmm. um, right? Because because our, our cultures are really beautiful and have a lot of um, mm-hmm. value, but they aren't always affirmed. Yeah. Some of your research uh, when you were dealing
0: with uh, ebonics and language, a powerful tool, I'm building on what Megan just said, somebody come in. A powerful tool is observation, just to go in a classroom and observe the dynamics that are occurring Sometimes teachers aren't even aware of it. The dynamic between the teacher and different students uh, of different colors and ethnic backgrounds and language, but also the dynamic that is going on among the students. How are students treating one another. How are they receiving one another. Do they see themselves as collaborators or does that white supremacy that even they're not aware of rise up in the way they treat one another. So, maybe you want to say a word about that.
3: Yeah, I actually just recently came up or created a, I guess you can say, an observation sheet mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. teachers to mm-hmm. observe within, them, within their own classroom. So, some of the components that are in it are, for example, how do my students show engagement? And so, mm-hmm. is it spontaneous mm-hmm. volunteerism or non-volunteerism? Mm-hmm overlap talking you know how do they show engagement because engagement should not always be a linear raise your hand and then i'll call on you <laughs> we also know that people who raise their hand don't are not always engaged right or, eye, <laughs> or even eye contact versus no eye contact in the asian culture eye contact is is considered very disrespectful because then it means i'm at your level so i will never as a student i never made eye contact with my teacher because i I knew that I was not at their level. But in the American dominant culture, it's about look at me when I'm talking to you. And, you know, so things like that, for for teachers to even understand who their students are, I also have them look at who who are the students in your classroom when it comes to gender identity, sexual orientation, religious backgrounds, um, economic status, you know, in every single way that we can look at children do they even know who comes into the room other than race because when we look when we talk about we have to be aware of cultural differences and norms in order to appreciate each other in the classroom a lot of times teachers only look at their students through race but race is not culture race has nothing to do with culture right it's our it's it's everything underneath the race right that that makes us who we are and makes us behave and and share ideas in the way that we do but the way that we look at assessments and demographic data is always through race so aside from that do you know who your students are in the classroom and then if once you do know who they are do you know anything about that culture and if you don't, how are you going to find out about it? I mean, we have Google now. So I, you know, I did, a PD, <laughs> um, I did a PD for a large district last year. And, you know, I was sharing these, these examples. And one of the teachers said, well, how do I find out? I said, Google it, <laughs> talk to someone. I mean, there's so many resources now. We don't have an excuse for, for ignorance. I also have teachers look at once you figure out who your students are, then do you have um, resources in your classroom that authentically represent who they are? Your, the books that you have in your library, the curriculum that you use, I mean, yes, the curriculum that we are forced to use is, is biased and it intentionally has left out a lot of histories but what do you do to add to it so you can teach students you can teach that curriculum and then teach students to read things with a critical lens this is what the curriculum says but let me teach you why they left this out and let me show you what the this is you know um do the walls include the student's home language and are students allowed to share and use in their home language? all you know there's so much embedded so i um that's that's something that i i just created and hopefully i'm going to share out with others soon it's very so beautiful
1: really? yeah so beautiful and powerful and i honestly if there is a quote i will take from this it is feeling so seen that you recognize the power of google.com y'all <laughs> like the power of google i i joked with megan a few years ago you know, when folks are like, I just don't know where to start. How do I begin to learn about racism and be a part of this work? And I said, I'm just going to start responding to folks and say, click here. And the word here is going to be hyperlinked to Google. Like, you know, y'all, we, we can do this. We can do this with the power of Google. Right. And also maybe we'll get Google to sponsor us. <laughs>
3: yeah, I like do protocol, observation sheet. <laughs> yeah, it's just like, I don't,
2: I don't understand it. Also, what what do you teach your students, right? You teach them to go find the answer. And yeah. so I'm gonna need you to be able to do that yourself. Um, <laughs> but, but Rita, thank you so much for gracing the pie. This was so wonderful just to talk about um, you know, education, you know, in a truthful way, um, in a way um, that that, you know, I think is the way that a lot of us experience the education system that doesn't always get talked about. Um, and so we really appreciate you just joining us on the podcast. And also, more importantly, just the way you show up in the world and, and the way that you are a co agitator um, in this fight with us.
3: Thank you so much. Thank you. I'm still growing. And I make <laughs> mistakes. But if there's anything that I can leave anybody with, it's you are not alone. And we I hope I hope that we as four um, have inspired someone to make some kind of change, no matter how big or small to help those who have been disempowered.